So I have a question that uh, you probably haven't asked in a while, but I'd almost be willing to bet you've asked at some point. And it's this, what do we do with the Old Testament law? Um, Now that we're on this side of the cross, how do we view the Old Testament? How do we view the law? Do we we just toss it? Um, Should we still follow it like we like we do anything in the New Testament? Um, some, some Christians have kind of answered that in a couple different ways. Uh, some have said, you know, we just, they're, they're more anti-law. You know, you might hear them say things like, you know, it's not, it's not about rules, man. It's about a relationship. Um, you might hear that kind of language come from them. Or you might hear them say that they're New Testament Christians. And they, um, they kind of allude to this idea that, you know, I really only follow what's in the New Testament. I don't even really pay attention to what's in the Old. It's, that's, that's old stuff. I don't really need to know that. Um, and that's one way of kind of dealing with it. Another, another maybe opposite end of the spectrum of dealing with it is to is kind of see it as like more legalistically, um, yeah, we should follow it, and, and that's how we know if you're really saved, is if you do these things. Um, if, you, if you kind of live this way, you know, that, that's how you know if God is, like, likes you, is if you, how well you keep up with these things, how well you do all the laws and all the, the commandments. And um, I, I understand Pastor Bob was on campus this past week. So for those of you who got to encounter him for the first time, our apologies. Um, he's a, he's a, it's a sad and, and angry man. But I guess he heard, and uh, Kelsey told me this this past week, that she heard him say that he hasn't sinned since 1983. Did anybody hear him say anything like that? Has anybody heard him say anything crazy like that? I never heard him say it. Kelsey said she's had several interactions with him, and she said she heard him say that. That that would be on this side of the spectrum saying, yeah, it's about, look look what I've done. It's about me not following or not, not breaking these things. Um, so th- there's a, a few different ways to, to kind of approach this idea and this, this question, what do we do with the Old Testament law? Well, well Paul's going to really deal with it. And I just realized I didn't write on the board what I, I was supposed to have written on the board. So I'm going to do that. It's going to take me a second. But as I'm doing it, what I want to reiterate is a, a principle when it comes to studying the, old, studying the Bible. Is, is this, this idea that we've got to pay attention to the larger context. Um, we've got to pay attention to the fact that like Romans 7 comes in the middle of Romans 5-8. through 8. And and you need to understand, you need to understand five through eight in order to. Hello, I got it. Did it go out? I killed it. I hit it. I know that. Um, um, it's over there somewhere. Oh, it, it's sweet. It's dead. We got it. For those who are listening, that was a wasp that flew up, and I hit it, smacked it out of the air, and. I killed it. All right. Now that I've lost you. Um, so Romans, Romans 5. So in Romans 5, um, you have this. That is a G. Um, Romans 5 starts off, 1 through 11 starts off by saying that we have peace with God through grace. That we've been, we have peace and reconciliation with God 
because of Jesus, through grace. And then 512 uh, through 21, I believe, says we're free from death. So 512, okay, there's a reason why I'm writing it sideways, you'll understand in a second. Uh, 5.12-21, through 21, it says we're free from death. 6, all of chapter 6, I think it's 23, says we're free from sin. And then in 7, which is where we're at today, uh, 1 through, what is it, 25, says we're free free from the law. And then Romans 8, and this is the hard one, is new life in spirit. New life in the spirit. So, um, this is where we're at today. So, 1 through 6, here's the different sections. 7 through 12, 13 through 20. And then 21 through 25 are the different breaks in which we're going to read it. So, Paul comes in and he, and he says, listen, because of, whoo, because of uh, the peace and reconciliation through grace, uh, we are free from death, which is amazing. We're free from sin, which was last week. And now he's going to say we're free from the law. And he's going to describe what that means. All of it pointing to this idea of our need for a new life in Christ, for this, a new way of living. And so, he starts off. So I want, to describe, I want to explain this word, law. A couple times it's going to be used, it's going to be used in two different ways. It's used, I don't know, seven, actually, somebody said it's, it's referenced, when you, when you think of like the word commandment or all these different things, about 30 times just in the, in the chapter 7 alone. But it's used in a couple different ways. One is Mosaic Law. So it's describing this, this system of remaining in right relationship with God. It, it, it's the way in which um, God gave the Israelites to stay in relationship with Him. And so it kind of came to stand for a representation of what makes them right before God is this Mosaic Law, that living by the law, living under the law. Another way he's going to use it is more of like a principle to live by. So you'll, you'll kind of see him maybe switch back and forth. But mostly the first part of chapter 7, he's going to use it in terms of Mosaic Law. And at the end of 7 and, and into the beginning of 8, he's going to use it to describe more of like a principle to live by. So that's that. But here's what, basically what he's going to say about the law. He's going to say that we are free from the law because law, the law was never meant to save us. The law was never meant... To save us. Instead, what ends up happening is it shows us how sinful we are. That wasn't its intent. That wasn't the original intent of the law. The law was given uh, as a way for God's people to stay in relationship with God. It was given as a way to show people how to live in freedom. And, and because it was so holy, when, when people encountered the law, it just showed how unholy they were. And it demonstrated and it, it revealed their sin. So, the, so we're free from the law because the law was never meant to save us. Another thing he's going to say and describe here is that we're free from the law because the law was never meant to transform us into righteous people. It was never meant to sanctify us either. 
So he's going to describe that towards the end here. He's going to describe the, this, this inner turmoil that may exist. And all of this, like I said, from 512 through, through the end of 7 is to kind of lead us to and point us to our need for a new way of living. A new way of living by the Spirit. So, uh, let's start Romans uh, 7, starting verse 1. Let, let me say this, um, 1 through 3, he's going to use a marriage illustration. Okay? He ended chapter 6 using slavery as kind of an illustration. He's going to begin chapter 7 with a marriage illustration. And then he's going to explain why he's using that illustration. So he's very, very clear uh, in, in, in this first little section here. So here we go. 7 verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, um, that, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by, by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, then she is released from the law of marriage. Keyword, released. Uh, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, then she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So don't get caught up on the, the adultery talk. The whole point of him describing that is to show that death is what frees us from the law. It's, it's this illustration. Because when two people get married, any, I don't know, anybody been to a wedding recently? Maybe in the last couple of days? Um, when two people are married, uh, it is till death do us what? Part. Very good. Till death do us part. And so um, when, when one dies, then the other is released from that, that, co- that covenant or that contract that they made um, for their life. But if one dies, the, then the other is released from that to, to marry another. That's, that's the whole point. Um, but he explains that very well in the next few verses. Here we go. Verse 4. Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So in, at the end of chapter 6, he talks about when, when you are enslaved to sin, it, it, it produces fruit that leads to death. But when you are enslaved to God, it produces fruit that leads to righteousness. He's continuing the fruit idea here in verse 4. Um, and then he says in verse 5, and, and I'm going to say this, 5 and 6 are the key to this whole chapter. Um, 5 and 6 really are the point of, of this, that we're free from the law. He's going to explain it re- really well. And actually, I think um, he's going he's gonna to set up the, the dichotomy that he's getting ready to introduce for the rest of this chapter and into the next. Okay, I'll explain what I mean. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, remember, because we're slaves to God, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So, um, it's because of, it's by death. So when, when he says that you've, you've died to the law, what he means is, we learned this last week in chapter 6, that 
um, if anyone is in Christ, we've been buried with him in baptism, right? Um, to, to raise him to walk in, into a new life. That's what he said at the beginning of chapter 6. So this is just saying that when you, um, when you trust Jesus for your life and his, his death and his resurrection, then you've died and you've risen to a new life. So death has freed you from the law, freed you from living under the law. So now you can be united with, with someone else. With who? And it says, the one who was raised from the dead. So, so he's saying, you've died to that. Now you're, now you're free to, to be united with, with Christ, to live this new life. And so he says, we're released from that law, and now we can live in this new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Um, so, so he's setting up this, this idea. Way. Old way or way of the flesh versus the new way and the way of the spirit. And the old way is what he's getting ready to describe right here. And the new way is what he's going to describe in chapter 8. Okay? That's what I think is happening. He, this, this, this uh, verses 5 and 6, if you read it, if you just skipped from 5 and 6 to 8-1, it would be a really smooth transition. Um, so I think, okay, and I, I say this with lots of hesitation because I've done lots of reading and studying on this, I think 7 through 25 is like this really long parenthetical note about um, how life under the old way of the, code, the written code, life under the old way of the law, was never meant to save us. It's not the law's fault. It's sin in us. And it was never meant to sanctify us. It was never meant to make us holy people. And so I think that's where he's going. And he starts each of these. He starts this section and this section by, with a question. And then he kind of answers that question. And this is, he's done this before. This is, we call this diatribe. This is like a, this literary device that he's using because he's going to ask a question that he assumes his audience is asking. And then he's going to answer that question to kind of engage his audience. So he says in verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. There's that word, meganoitai. It's, it's the strongest no Paul could use. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law... I would have not known sin, for I would, have, I, would have, I would not have known what it is to covet. So he picks covet as an example, okay? In the, in the Ten Commandments, I believe it's number 10. I would not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin dies. Sorry, sin lies dead. I once was apart from the law. When, but when the commandment came, sins came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, there's that phrase again, deceived me, and through it killed me. And so the law is holy. Here's his answer. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. In other words, the law is not the problem. The law was meant for good purposes. The law was righteous and holy. And, but when the law came, all of a sudden, sin that was in us sprang to life. So, that's what Paul is describing. So, here's what he says about sin. Here's what he says about the law 
in sin. He says the law reveals sin, the law provokes sin, the law condemns sin. Um, and he says, and, and with it, with the law, when the law came and sin came to life, um, the word opportunity there is this interesting oppor- word that means like set up a base camp. Um, so sin, like sin came to life, set up a base camp and operated from it. Um, it's kind of an interesting idea. But he says, and I died. It killed me. So obviously he's not talking physical or literal. He's talking more of a spiritual death that took, that took place. Um, so, so the law is like a flashlight. And here's what I mean. So this happened to me when I was in, in high school. Uh, me and my friends were at a baseball game outside of town. Uh, I had my parents... Um, 1986 Ford Thunderbird Turbo Coupe, six-speed. Okay, so it was a manual transition, had six-speed. And so I decided to take the long way home uh, to show off my car, my parents' car, whatever. And so we, we take this long way home. I'd never been. My friend said, oh, yeah, you can go this way. We'll take the long way, blah, blah, blah. It's this really cool highway, windy road. So we're driving down this road. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'd never been here. And all of a sudden, the radio starts kind of going in and out, and then it goes out. And then the dash lights start going in and out, and then they go out. And then my headlights go out. And then the car dies, okay? So I'm not supposed to be here in the first place, um, but I'm now <laughs> we're coasting, like, away from my parents' house. Um, and on this road, I'd never been. And so we eventually, l- luckily, the moon was bright. We eventually come to this place, we pull over. Now, if I was mechanically inclined and had the ability, I probably would have tried to, you know, figure out what was going on. I didn't. We just ran to the nearest house, and because we didn't have cell phones back then, I know. <laughs> Went to the nearest house, called, called somebody to come get us. It was a big mess. My, my dad was not happy. But anyway, if I had the tools, okay, and the know-how, what I would have done was I would have gone to my glove, glove box or my trunk, and I would have grabbed a flashlight. Because the flashlight at that moment becomes a really helpful tool to help expose the problem. And I would have noticed at that time, actually was, the alternator belt would, had gone out, okay? And it eventually killed the battery, killed the car. So that's what I would have seen. But the flashlight can't fix that problem. But the flashlight can go back to the trunk, and if I had the tools, and again, the know-how, which I don't, I would have been able to shine the light on the tools on, on, on the solution, but the flashlight itself cannot fix the problem. And in the same way, the law is, is, is this way. The law became this flashlight that exposed sin in us, revealed sin in us, and, and pointed to the, the, a solution, but was never meant to be the solution. So the, the law was never intended to be our Savior. Um, so then he says, he asks another question. So, He's, he's thinking what they might be thinking. So if sin caused, if came from the law, and if sin produced death, did the law bring death? So that's the question in, in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? And again, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So, it's helping, the law has just helped us see what's there and, and, and it's shown it for, to be what it is. 
This uh, help us to see that we're sinful beyond measure. It's a drastic term. And then he goes into this description of this inner turmoil that may, may exist for those trying to live under the old way of the written code. He says, for, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, what I want but, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree the, with the law um, that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. So, he, he's, he's a little redundant here. He says this a couple times. He's stating and, and restating what happens when a person who is trying to, trying to live a holy life under the law, and, and no matter how bad they want to be holy and righteous, the, the law just keeps showing them that they can't. So, notice the word I in this, okay, in this, this whole letter. So, a lot of ink, believe it or not, a lot of ink has been spilled over trying to figure out who the I is in this, in this chapter. Okay, I don't know if you've came across this. I don't know if you've... How many of you before tonight, actually this week, how many of you this week have read through chapter 7 of Romans? Okay, so maybe half or so, maybe more. So, there's a debate on this. And let me tell you, it is extensive. It's, it's crazy. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, if you have questions, I can, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. I have all this useless knowledge. That's not useless. I have all this knowledge that I'm not going to be able to use right now. Um, um, because I, 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 I don't want to get caught in the weeds of who the I is here. Because what I believe is happening, I stated in verses 5 and 6, he's introducing this, this dichotomy of the old way versus the new way. And that's what I think is happening. So I, I believe Paul is, is in the present tense, I, I think you could change it to we. And he's speaking for all those who think that if we just loved obeying the law, we could fulfill God's righteous requirements. He, he's speaking to those who are trying to live by the old way of the written code. He's speaking to those who, who rely on their own strength to be the kind of holy people that God requires. And I think somewhere in that, I've hit all of us, I think, I believe, at some level, all of us have attempted by our own strength to kind of please God by just really trying to be better. And I think that's what he's hitting at some level. Um, so have you ever thought, if, the, if, if, if only I just wanted to do the right things, um, then surely I would do the right things. And Paul says, yeah, that's not how it works. Um, knowing what the right thing to do and wanting to do the right thing without the Spirit. So notice, in, in, start in verse 7 through 25, the Spirit's never mentioned. And I, I think that's significant. Because He's mentioned in verse 6, 5 and 6. It's mentioned there in verse 6, but not mentioned in, in this, whole, this whole inner turmoil dialogue thing that's happening. So I, I, that's, that's what also helps me understand why, what, who I think Paul is describing. I think he's describing a collective we of those who, and Paul has done this, tried to, to, to please God by living 
righteously under the law and trying to follow it perfectly. The other reason I think um, he's not describing himself as, a, as Paul, the missionary of 25 years, who started churches, who's a mature believer, is because he says in verse 6, or in chapter 6, that he is not, we're not slaves to sin anymore. And then he... Sweet. Is that an outro or an intro? Or is it trying to get me off the stage? Anyway. He says in chapter 6, like I say, that, he, um, that we're not sold, that we're not slaves to sin. And then here he says... We are sold, un- we're, I'm, I'm slave to sin, I'm sold under sin. That's what that's saying, it's the same thing. And then in chapter 8 he says, we're free from the law of sin and death. And so, I think because of 6 and 8, I don't think Paul is describing himself as a mature believer struggling under sin. But I don't think that, I don't think Paul would disagree that Christians struggle in sin. I don't think Paul would say, no, Christians should never struggle in sin. So then, question... Like, how do we understand our struggle as followers of Jesus? How do we understand our struggle in sin? How does God view our sin? And how do we respond to Him? And that's what we're going to talk about in the second half. But I'm not, I'm not quite done uh, with this first half. So, the law was never intended um, to sanctify us, to make us holy. It was never intended to transform our hearts into the kind of people who could be um, the righteous people God requires. The law, in, in some sense, was powerless um, to make us righteous people. So let me, let me finish here in, in verse 21. So I find it to be a law, and I think he means principle, okay? I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, um, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. I love that confession. I've said it many times. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, he, he continues this dichotomy. He's describing the struggle. He, he, he continues talking about this um, old way of the flesh, and he's about to point to um, the new way of the Spirit. And he calls, this, he calls this inner turmoil, he calls it a war that's raging, that, that's waging in his mind and in his body. Um, and he, I believe he's describing what it's like when we try to live um, for God by our own strength and power. And so chapter 8 is going to get into more of this flesh versus spirit talk. Uh, but before we get there, I'd love to talk more about um, our sin. And I know in, in, in chapter 6, if you are here last week, Drew gave this incredible, told this incredible story about this soldier who lived like, a, um, lived like the war still existed for t- almost 30 years, I think it was, 29 years, hiding out, thinking the war still is going on, and the war had ended decades before. And the point was, like, the Bible says we're free. In, in Christ, we're free from sin. And yet, sometimes we, we choose to listen to the old slave master. And that's true. But I, I would guarantee every single one of us, at some point, in our Christian walk, has sinned. That's, that's, 
just silly to even say out loud um, because I know how true it is. Um, I've met with some of you. I know. Um, so what do we do with that? Like, okay, yeah, we're free from sin, and I know I need to not listen to the old slave master, but how do I, like, how does God view sin in my life now, and, and how should I respond to him? So we'll take a little break. We'll come back and talk about that. Let me start my little timer. Here we go. Sin occurs 43 times. The word sin occurs 43 times in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So I think it's obviously worth talking through. Um, and in a moment, my, my hope is that we, that we are able to have an honest moment with God. Um, I'm going to give you some time. I'm going to give you a sheet that will kind of maybe help walk through some things. But, but I want to give you some, some time to think about your sin in, 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 re, in relationship to God and how He views it. And so we're going to give you some time to think about that, and we're going to spend some time reflecting on that and praying. Um, but before we do that, I really do want to answer this question. How does God view sin? How does God view our sin for those in Christ? And, and how should we respond to Him when we sin? Um, so here's what I want to say about how God views sin. This may surprise you. But God is not surprised by your sin. He's not shocked by your sin. And I would even say God isn't um, frustrated or even disappointed in you when you sin. Okay? How, how do you know that, Scott? How could you say that? Well, let me read this verse and then I'll, I'll explain. Um, Hebrews 4.13. It's a great verse. Um, comes to mind a lot for me whenever I think about my sin in light of God. Here's what he says. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Okay? So in other words, I'm standing here. I may be covered, but God can see everything. Right before this, in verse 12, it says that God's Word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate soul and spirit, divide joints and marrow, and, 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 and discern the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So if God's Word, if this thing, words on a page, by God's Spirit can discern my thoughts and my attitudes, then, then God can surely see that. Jesus actually, while He was here, He would, he would read people's Minds, he would know what they were thinking. He would know what was on their heart. So, uh, God sa- it says that God, is, God can see all things, right? There's nothing that, that is hidden from Him. There's nothing that, um, that, that is outside of His um, vision or outside of His notice. The Bible describes God as eternal. I mean, He's, he's always been and He always will be. He's outside of time. He knows, uh, he knows when we were born. He knows when we will die. He knows the cause of our death. And He's there. Right? He's there with the people that love us when we die. And so, if God is outside of time, He sees all things, it means that there's, there's nothing that we could do that, to surprise Him or, or to shock Him. Because to be surprised or shocked, you would have to not know something was coming. And God knows everything that's coming. He's also not frustrated or disappointed with you. And here's why. It says that God is omniscient. He knows all things. To, to be fr- 
so when you get frustrated or disappointed with somebody, it's because you thought they were one way and you found out that maybe they weren't what you thought. And so you're disappointed. When you experience disappointment, it's because you didn't know the reality. God knows all things. There's nothing, God can never be disappointed in something. Does that make sense? Because He knows all things. So, um, and so God isn't frustrated at you because He knows. Like, what could you do that He wouldn't know you were going to do? And the answer is nothing. The hard part is making that connection when you feel the guilt or the weight or the shame of your sin. The hard part is going, okay, what's true of God right now? The truth is He knew this day was coming. He's not shocked or surprised. He's not disappointed. He knew, I mean, He knew it was in me to do this, and, and I did. So that's how I believe God views us in our sin. And because of what Christ has done, and because it says that you know He's paid that price, we've been redeemed and, and we're being restored in Him, that sin really isn't, isn't our biggest problem. It, that it, Sin isn't, isn't what is stopping us from having a relationship with God. Sometimes, though, we, we, we take sin and we, we do things with it. I think God... Um, well, let me say this. Romans 1 tells us okay, that He will pour out His wrath on all sin and disobedience. Romans 3 tells us, amazingly, that Jesus took that for us. And then Romans 5 tells us that we have peace and reconciliation with God because of Jesus through grace. So, nothing that we do would surprise and shock Him or frustrate him and disappoint him because he's it's been paid for so then then where does that leave us when we sin like how do we understand this and and i think we get tripped up because sometimes we project either how we would react um, onto god or we, we sometimes project how our parents reacted to us when we messed up onto god and so but i i do think god hates sin and I do think God hates what happens to us in sin. In the same way, um, oh man, I don't have my phone. Drew, I need you to get my phone out of my bag. It's in the front pocket. Uh, I have pictures I need to show. But I, I do think God hates what sin does to us like a father hates it when a child disobeys and gets hurt. Okay? So, uh, several years ago, we were living in California. And, um, thank you. And we were at church. Trace was three years old. And he, he was running around. And, and my wife had told him several times to stop running. Because when he was running, he was crazy. If any of you know my son, it's just true. He was running around crazy. So he tells Kylie, who was like eight at the time, okay, go get your, go get your brother. Go find him. Tell him to stop. And so then it, it went from Trace just running around like normal, to trace running from his sister, which became a whole new game that he loved. Um, and, and so he was running like this, <laughs> running, right? And then just turns around, and this solid wood, you know, he's like this tall. So this solid wood table, he hits full force just with his teeth 
Amazingly, nothing else in his body hit this table <laughs> except his three front teeth. Knocked them completely out right away. And he's, <laughs> so, so Kylie comes running back in, like freaking out. Trace is hurt, Trace is hurt. Right, so we run in there. This kid is laying in a pool of blood. Um, and we had no idea what happened. His three front teeth knocked out, and we only found two of them. So we have no idea where the third tooth is. Either he swallowed it and we didn't find it, or it's somewhere still in the church, and I don't know. Some kid's going to pick it up and put it under his pillow at night sometime. Um, so this is what he looked like. Let me see if I can get this. Um, so this is my son. Maybe. Are the TVs on? There it is. Okay. So that's him. That's him. You kind of see it there, but you can really see it um, here. Nope. Why is it not coming? There. You really see it there. Can I zoom in? Oh, yeah. Look at that. Look at that. So, for like, I mean, until he was, gosh, I don't know, eight, nine, ten ish, he's missing three front teeth. And, and we were worried that, like, when they grew in, they were going to be all snaggly and crooked. But no, they grew in pretty straight. But anyway, so he's missing actually four right there. That, that lower tooth didn't happen that day. But anyway, so, you know, I, when I see that, it's like I, I get frustrated because I'm, we're telling you not to run, and this is why, you know, um, because you're going to get hurt, right? So there's this, there's this anger, but I'm not, I'm not mad at him. I'm, I'm mad that he's hurt. I'm, I'm freaking out because this is our first ER trip for, from all of our kids. Um, this is our first one. And so... You know, but God doesn't react that way because God would know that that was coming. You, you see what I'm saying? But He still hates the pain that sin causes in us. So, what is uh, an appropriate response to God um, when we sin? And so I have five words. Okay, you can write them down. I'll, I, you can put whatever you want to put in, by them. But here's the first one: it's humility. I'm just going to give you, give you all of them. Humility. Um, confession is an appropriate response. We're going to do some of that tonight. Repentance is an appropriate response. Trust. Worship. All these things are, are, are appropriate responses to God who said, your sin is forgiven. Past, present, future. It's been paid for in Jesus. You're free from the burden that sin places on you. We're going to sneak peek to next week. I can't help it. But um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to, it, the appropriate response to a God when you sin is humility, not blame. Not, God, you know, why did you make me this way? God, why did you give me those parents, or that circumstance, or, you know, they did this, and I, it's not, it's not blame, it's humility. It's what, what David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, 
and blameless in your judgment. If you haven't read Psalm 51 in a while, it's worth reading. Paul, or sorry, David writes this psalm after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife. Then he has, has him, um, Bathsheba's husband, murdered in war because he was king. He'd do whatever he wanted. He had him killed. And then he lost his first child because of his sin. God told him when finally he got a hold of him, listen, your son's going to die. So you think about this, like David, adultery, murder, lost his son, all because of his sin. And yet when, when David worshiped and pray, um, fasted and, and worshiped, and then when God's answer came by the death of his son, he got up and went back to king. But at some point it says he wrote Psalm 51. And he wrote this, this beautiful psalm of repentance and humility and confession. So it's, it's humility, not blame. It's confession. It's not, not ignoring the problem. It's, it's confessing it. Confession is claiming what's true before God. And that, that goes with our sin. That also goes with what we believe. It's claiming what's true. So this is what I did. God, He already knows. It's just kind of for your benefit, actually. It's really helpful for you to be able to admit to Him, this is what I did. This is why I did it. This is what I wanted. And I realized, God, I was wrong. I realized that that was, that was me chasing after your creation and not you. That was me chasing after selfish purposes and not you. It's confession. It's not ignoring it. It's repentance, not apologizing. It's not saying I'm sorry. That doesn't, that doesn't do it. Repentance is a changing, changing of mind and a change of direction. It's thinking rightly about what you've done. It's thinking rightly about what's, um, what God would want. And it's turning from that to Him. It's trust, not self-pity. It's, if He says you're forgiven and free, it's trusting that and believing it and acting in it. It's not, oh, no, I'm such a terrible person. God can never love me. He can never forgive me again because I told Him I wouldn't do it and I did it again. I mean, He could never... It's not... That's self-pity. That's, that's, not, that's me focused. Some, some, I've heard somebody, several people actually say, yeah, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. So think about that. Let's weigh those two things. The God who created all things, created you, um, king of the universe. He says, because of Jesus, which was a huge cost to him, you're forgiven and free. And you say, yeah, but I don't feel like it. And I don't, I don't feel forgiven, so I can't forgive myself. Which of those has more weight to it? Um, weigh it out. That's what Drew said last week. Count the cost. Um, calculate the truth. And, and you'll see God's Word is worth trusting. And you can trust it. So it's trust, not self-pity. And it's worship. It's not, it's not you trying harder. It's not you trying to, to, to do it better next time. There's something about worship that draws our focus off of us and onto Him. Um, that's what it's about. It's focused more on who He is and what He's done than it is on trying not to mess up again. God's goal for you isn't that you would um, 
live a perfect sinless life. That, I don't know if I don't know if he one. I don't think it's possible. So I think his goal for you is to fall more in love with him because something happens when when my, when I grow in affection for God, when I grow in greater love for God. It, it seems to take the loves I have for the things of this earth and the same things in this world, the, the things that draw me away from God, and it, and it replaces it with a greater love for God. And, and then everything else just seems to fall into its proper place. So I think all these things are natural and appropriate responses to, to, to God when we sin. It's humility, confession, and trust, and worship. So in a moment, um, we're going to do that. I'm going to have you. I'm going to have you spend some time alone. I'm going to pass out the sheet. We have several people that are going to pass these out here in a second. But before we do that, I want to read in First John, chapter one, verse eight and nine. First John one eight through nine says this: If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous, and will forgive our sins, and and uh, forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all righteousness. So, God is 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 made a promise that that when we confess our sin to Him, He's faithful and just. He will forgive us. Like this should be confession should be a time. Of and it often isn't. It isn't for me. I have to work through and I have to think about what's true. Uh, but it should be a time of okay, God, I get to confess this to you. You already know it, but I'm realizing it, and so I'm gonna let I'm gonna verbalize it and and call it what it is to you. So, what what when I mentioned sin, when I mentioned your sin, what came to mind? Um, what, what was the first thing that, that, that you thought of? Something that trips you up on a regular basis. And, and have you been able to name that and, and confess that to God? So we're going to give you some time to do that. So go ahead and pass those out. Um, there's two, two sides to this sheet. The side that says a prayer of confession and a prayer of thanksgiving, we're going to actually read those together. So, you can read them if you want, but we're gonna we're gonna read those together. There's a side that says consecrating the the parts of our body. Now, I didn't write this. Um, I got this from somewhere else. But I think this this might help. If you oh yeah they don't have any. If you can't think of something. Then, then, then maybe you can read through some of these parts of our body, right? Because Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is something about our sin nature that uses, it comes out in our body parts. It, it does. It just comes out in, in, in our hands or our eyes or our um, there it is, you know, it's right in the middle, it's awkward, but I'm going to read it, sexual parts. <laughs> and, and honestly, I chose, I picked this because that was there. I mean, if you think about it, 
they're no different than any other part of our body. And yet, they seem to be oftentimes the parts that, that um, either cause the most problems for us or, or draw us away from God quickest or whatever you want to say. Um, but I just appreciate who, the person who put this together saying, yeah, we're going to deal with this. Because this is something, I love the line of each, each, after each one of these, it says, we give you our, whatever, hands, for they are already yours. And I love this confession of saying, God, like all of this is yours. And like I said, none of this surprises God. God's not disappointed in you because of sin. Yes, He hates sin. He hates it so much He sent His Son to die um, in our place because of it. But there's an appropriate way to respond to Him in it. And so, let me pray, and then you can spend some time confessing to God. God, thank You for um, this moment, and I ask that You would use this time for Your purposes, God, that You would um, speak to us, reveal to us, help us to see areas that maybe we haven't confessed to You, and God, help us to be honest and open to You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.